There are six items in Tynwald this week relating to climate change. Overall emissions are to be reduced by at least 35% by 2030 and 45% by 2035. There's a ban on microbeads and single-use plastics including plates, bags, straws, stirrers, cutlery and cups. And there's a clear plan and roadmap for us to become carbon neutral by 2050. Daphne Kane chairs the Climate Change Transformation Board and Professor Curran has been a lead advisor to government in developing the climate change plan and targets. I spoke to them in a rather echoey room in government offices. I suppose the obvious first question is, why does Tynwald need to bother with any of this? I mean, most people uh, would recognise perhaps that uh, climate change is a thing, um, but the scale and size of what the Isle of Man is, what what it emits, it makes it hardly worth bothering with. Yeah, okay, climate change is a thing. It's a very, very big thing. <laughs> and it's uh, causing chaos around the world and huge costs to society and economies around the world. So it's a thing that we definitely every single person on the planet needs to take very, very seriously and support deep actions to prevent it getting worse because it will get worse unless we really, really change the way we all live and do business on the planet. So it's a thing, but boy, it's a big thing. And, and, and Daphne, I mean, why? again, the, you, you often hear, I mean, you, you, you'll have heard this many a time because you've done phone-in programmes and meetings. Um, a number of people in the Manx public just say, uh, well, we, we, the, our Im- influence on all of this is so small. Why do we need to bother? Well, it's the same principle as uh, a drop in the ocean. But, you know, if everybody threw back the starfish, if everybody does their little bit, it it, it all builds into a bigger thing and, and it helps the world. And also, reputationally, do we want to be dirty, polluting, um, unadapted island which isn't doing playing its part in in our international obligation for the betterment of society in general but actually it's at the moment in the middle of an energy crisis and a cost of living crisis when we're talking about reducing our emissions burning less fossil fuel um, actually that's going to bring down the cost of things as well ultimately as well as benefiting us in ways to the environment, to our biodiversity, reducing pollution. What's not to like? And although you say we do get phone-ins, I think that the the tide has turned. I think more people, and we know from our research, almost 70% of people describe themselves as concerned or very anxious about climate change. And actually, the, the, the hollering I get, the, the most noise now, I think, is why haven't we taken action yet? Why hasn't the Isle of Man got on with it? And actually, that's a good uh, question, I suppose, to uh, you, Pref- Professor Curran. Um, the, uh, it is fair to say that we've known about this for, for you know, many decades, really. Uh, why do you think it is that it's taken so long for countries, not just the Isle of Man, to, to actually get their act together on this? I think there's many reasons Um Certainly climate scientists have been warning of climate change for over 100 years, actually. And there's been growing evidence for at least 50 years. And in the last couple of decades, yes, I think it's become more and more evident to people around the world the degree of seriousness that we need to attach to climate change. But 
it's tough for governments. I mean, running countries is a difficult job, and there's always other priorities get in the way. Recently, we've had COVID. Now we have uh, wars, and we, we have a cost of living crisis. So I don't envy politicians their job. It is hard, uh, and many people will say politicians should be there to lead. They can only lead to a degree. They can't be too far out ahead of their populations. And at the same time, I have been all my life an environmental regulator. I know that there are deeply vested interests right across the economy and in big business who have gone out of their way to discredit climate change. And that has had a cumulative effect for many, many years. So it's been a very difficult background and context in which to drive forward real ambition at the national and international level on climate change. I think Recently, we've gone through what you might call a social tipping point, and the will, and already is, an economic tipping point as well, when everything becomes much clearer that we must have to take action. And if we don't, as Daphne just said, you become a pariah nation. You're left behind, trailing in the wake of other countries that are much more progressive. So I think there will be a, a very rapid acceleration around the world. And I am completely convinced that the world will reach net zero in 2050. And we will avoid the worst impacts of climate change, but we certainly won't avoid it all now. And, and Daphne, I mean, the, one of your colleagues who shall re re remain nameless uh, provided me with one of these uh, American conspiracy theorist books and said, here, have a look at this. There's some really good evidence in here. And uh, sadly, it is full of conspiracy theory uh, nonsense dressed up as, as, as fact. Uh, there, there's still an awful lot of uh, persuading to do with a, a, a relatively small number, perhaps, of, of the population. But you know, pe people still need to be convinced about this. There is a small number who remain to be convinced, but I feel that the overwhelming majority have been convinced. And the more you see programmes um, exposing the, for instance, the vested interests of the fossil fuel industry. BBC recently had a programme, and just as the tobacco industry did many years ago, saying, no, it's absolutely fine to smoke, the oil industry very much said, no, it's not us, it's nothing to do with us, even though they were carrying out research that proved that fossil fuel burning was responsible for, for climate change. And when you see people who who's homeland whose island nations have been devastated by the impacts of climate change, then you really start to feel that we are all one world and the Isle of Man is a part of that world. And the Isle of Man, in a smaller way, has experienced climate change, increasing rainfall events, flooding, and increasing um, high levels of sea, you know, overtopping of the sea. They're only going to get more frequent and more people, more livelihoods will be at risk. So why wouldn't the Isle of Man want to ensure that we are adapted for the, the climate change that we are going to experience? While we can hope that if everybody plays their part and we manage as a as a the, the, the world to keep the um, increase in temperatures below two degrees and hopefully below 1.5 degrees, there are still changes that are evident now that we are experiencing. And, and you talked to people around Laxey. You know, nobody's forgotten the several floods um, and recovering from that. But there's a, there's a, an economic impact still with people not able to get 
um, house insurance for flood. The, and the fear factor, I mean, I've spoken to young children who were young when the, the last flood happened, who are still nervous, run upstairs if it rains. So so there is an impact on us. It is felt in the community. And for a large part of my constituency, and I think the island, it's the message now, please just get on and do something take the action bring us the renewables bring down our emissions but also make the isle of man a better healthier greener place for everybody and and again professor curran you you alluded earlier to the the difficulties that uh, governments face um i mean there there are inevitable difficulties and and certainly uh, with the uh, the current cost of li- living crises uh, it is hard to to see how government can manage to afford to do all the things it needs to do and yet uh, it's fair to say that many of the cost cost of living crises could have been avoided if we lived in a more sustainable way Absolutely. (laughs) I couldn't agree more uh, with that uh, comment you just made. Um, Absolutely. It is so clear now that uh, in terms of energy supply to the population and to business and to industry, the cheapest form by a country mile is uh, solar and wind generation, far, far cheaper than the escalating price of of oil and gas. And it's been predicted for many years that that oil and gas will eventually run out anyway. So why would anyone want to go on exploiting it um, when there are much, much cheaper options? And at the same time, to ally that to increasing energy efficiency, again, both within the economy and at the domestic and personal level, where you can take control and drive down your own costs of living uh, through insulation and double glazing. All of that makes absolute sense. And if you want to live in a more secure and resilient world, better for your families, better for your employment, then these are the obvious courses and, and, and actions to take for the future. Michelle Haywood is a member of the Environment Department. You're taking a motion to Tinwald, uh, and it's uh, in relation to single-use plastics. Tell us a little bit about why the department uh, thinks that this is necessary. Um, I think it's long been recognised, and, and there are EU directives around it as well, but it's long been recognised that plastics, when they escape into the environment, uh, don't decompose pretty much ever. They might break down into smaller particles of plastics, but those microplastics now are pretty much found in in every environment that we look at and so we've all been aware of of you know like seeing images of, of floating plastic garbage patches at sea um equally in even in the deepest parts of our our oceans you'll find past plastic debris that's sunk down there and will sit there and it won't degrade and so one of the ways in trying to address this problem is to stop that plastic coming into use in the first place and that's what this legislation is trying to do I suppose anyone who's done a beach clean with uh, Bill Dale and and Beach Buddies will know that uh, significant amounts of plastic uh, washes up on shore. Um, But of course, the the other bit, which of course is a bit that you were more interested in perhaps when you were um, um, more actively engaged in diving, uh, these microplastics uh, get Mm -hmm. swallowed up by fish. They... uh, 
they get into the the food chain and ultimately if if you eat fish you potentially are eating lots of microplastics yeah there's microplastics in pretty much everything you look at you know you run your tumble dryer and there will be small amount of microplastics given off from that uh, we know when we're washing clothes you get microplastics little bits breaking off the clothes that go into the, the water that we've used as well and so you know, the marine environment I think almost it provides some very nice imagery to understand what's happening both on, on, on land and in the air really. The motion to Tinwald is, is to effectively ban single-use plastics. Mm-hmm. What's the timescale for this? How, how long do people have to make the transition between uh, uh, where we are and where we need to be? Uh, we've given businesses a really long lead time. They, um, we're not going to say you have to throw away all your stock. We know that a lot of food businesses, for example, will be sitting there across winter and will be ordering things like their packaging for the next summer. Um, so there's over a year of, of lead time in this for them to use up stocks and then not to buy new ones. But I know I was in one of the wholesalers a couple of weeks ago. And actually, if you look at the shelves now, predominantly it's paper-based packaging. It's uh, There's very little polystyrene. There's very little plastics around. So I think actually the supply chain is moving that way anyway so for most of our our food retailers they've probably moved that way and if not this will be the final sort of push to head them in that direction and to a fashion uh, as you said earlier we're, we're catching up with legislation elsewhere uh, across europe there's a, a directive on uh, on single-use plastics mm-hmm. and, and in essence this is what we're doing uh, getting our legislation uh, caught up with everyone else well it, I, in some cases yes we, we're catching up so things like the, the plastic single-use plastic bags yeah that's definitely a catch-up bit but actually we've gone beyond that so we've gone to the things like the stirrers and the cutlery and, and all of those so when our legislation goes through it'll actually be slightly ahead of some of the other jurisdictions in terms of the scope of of what we've covered under the what's now going to be not allowed and i suppose as a member of the department of environment food and agriculture you'll be particularly interested in the motions preceding your motion on the order paper which are all in relation to uh, climate change um you know where where we seem to have two targets. There's the the thirty five percent by twenty thirty, forty five percent by uh, twenty thirty five. Are these ambitious enough? Do you think? In some ways, having any ambition is good compared to what went previously, and so in that ways, I welcome it. Do I think it's ambitious enough? No, if I'm if I'm truly honest, I think we could have done better. And in fact, we're taking it relative to our 2018 emissions, which we know were already considerably higher than than sort of neighbouring jurisdictions on a per capita basis. Anyway, so we're almost like we picked a high starting point and then not set it very high. And I think because we picked that high starting point, we probably should have, have tried to push a little bit more. Um, they are targets. I hope, and there's nothing to say you can't exceed a target. Well, indeed, uh, the, the motion <laughs> you know, is worded to say at yeah, least. 35%. At least, yeah. So I, I'm yeah. hoping that we manage to achieve something beyond that. But it is really about providing that push to make things head in the right direction, which is, you know, after years of, of no no movement in that way, and in fact, almost ignoring the problem uh, up until quite recently, I think this is a, a really strong and positive move. Do you think the the Manx public understand the uh, the enormity of what is going to be potentially decided in uh, Tinwald uh, this 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 week? 
Um, I think some of them do, and I, I, it's not you know it's not very long since the election, and, and going back to being on the doorstep, it was something that was raised time and again about why why have we not why are we not moving on this? So I think there will be quite a, a, a sizable chunk of the population that welcomes the fact that things are actually starting to filter through, and it was fine declaring a climate change emergency. But then you have to work out what to do about it. And, th- and that takes a while to, to make sure you've got your data and make sure you've got your options. So I think the fact that these targets are in there, I think, will be welcomed by some people. There will always be those within society who don't want to accept that climate change is real or that it's driven by human activity. And they will undoubtedly uh, push back against this. Um, I think throughout this, you know, we we talk about things like a just transition and things like that. But actually, what what we're all interested in is maintaining our quality of life, um, because we like the way we live, um, and it's making those changes whilst trying to maintain that quality of life that's going to be the big challenge for us. One of the things I particularly liked about the the timeline, which has it's only a, a sheet of of, of A4, uh, but it has its its very own uh, motion on the order paper. Um, but uh, it, it was rather good that uh, not you know alongside actions and times there were benefits mm-hmm. um, and uh, I suppose many people when they're they're looking at this they're looking at the cost they're, they're thinking about the the changes in their lives um, and and maybe uh, the benefits are something that we we need to spend a bit more time focusing on. Yeah, and one of the aspects of work that the DEFRA are involved in is air quality testing around the island. 60 sites that we're we're testing air quality at now if you can reduce the level of uh, car emissions then almost immediately you've got an improvement in nitrous oxide levels and particularly where those roads run past schools or care homes where we've got vulnerable people that's an almost an immediate benefit that you can start seeing creep through now we know that you know in, in atmospheric terms it's going to take decades to turn around the damage that we've done with how much co2 is actually in the atmosphere but at the same time, there are the, the the more immediate, more local benefits that we can see coming from that. We spoke um, several months ago now about uh, the potential for blue carbon. Mm-hmm. Uh, any any progress with with that? Any any little hints or, or glimmers that we could uh, could could find out about? Um, yeah, the the team have been out and they've been taking core samples from a variety of sites. So some of them onshore. Um, and to look at how much carbon is stored in the, in the sediment around our shores. And, you know, as you'd expect on a sandy shore, you're not storing very much carbon in those. But they've also done some sampling from some of the deeper water sites where you've got silty or, or mud substrates. And there's a significant increase in the amount of carbon that is stored away in, in that seabed. And so that gives you all sorts of information. Um, we can look at the rate that carbon gets deposited in there and you can estimate how much carbon storage is going on. And although it's entirely natural processes driving that, it gives you a chance to look and say, well, you know, depending on what we do as humans, what's the risk to that? that carbon store there as well so uh, there's obviously more work to come this is only year one out of three um but but at the moment the the initial results are are giving us some quite valuable data in understanding how much carbon is stored in our seas and we know of course about the potential for planting trees uh, on on the landscape we can see them it's it's all Mm -hmm. pretty obvious and and straightforward, although uh, it is fair to say that the 85,000 tree uh, planting exercise wasn't the greatest of success. Um, it, most of our territory uh, is under the sea. 
Is there similar opportunity there in in relation to potentially planting, I don't know, planting kelp forests or or things like this? Um, Theoretically, you could. Kelp will grow where kelp wants to grow, though. And come sort of uh, September, October, usually the kelp starts to break down by then. It's been heavily colonised by various things that live on kelp as a a substrate. And so it'll shed its fronds and, and, and actually most of it will get ripped off in sort of winter storms and end up on the beaches. And then people come writing, complaining about tractors pushing seaweed around on beaches. Um, so I, it doesn't give you a long-term store unless it ends up down in that sediment. And so the real value is what's in the sediment rather than what's floating around. Obviously, it contributes uh, to that sedimentation process. Could you do something like a seaweed farm and, and, and things like that? Somebody did send me a paper where it's been tried um, somewhere else in the world. And they were farming seaweed, then collecting it and taking it out and dumping it into 3,000 metres deep of water. And I laughed at that because it's just never going to be anything. I, I don't even know how much fossil fuel was spent taking on the boat, taking out seaweed to dump it in the sea. But it seems like the height of insanity to me. I think it's probably more likely uh, when we've done the Blue Carbon Project that we can look at our activities within the sea and what do we need to do to protect those and to, to make sure that as much sedimentation as can happen is, is actually happening and we're not doing anything to interrupt that process. Where, where are we up to then in, in terms of uh, the addressing climate change? Is this uh, the, the, the motions going to Tynmald? Are they stumbling steps in the, in the right direction? Are they bold uh, initiatives or something between the two? I think it's, it's, it feels like it's been slow to get off the ground, um, but there's been a lot of groundwork done to get to this point. And the fact that there's actual plans coming forward and actual targets, I think, is a really good step in the right direction could we do more arguably we knew about climate change 30 40 years ago and yes we could have done more and and it's one of the reasons i got into politics is the frustration with with not doing more it's really hard to take those steps it's a big risk for politicians now because we are saying we will disrupt what goes on in life and and what you're used to and what you're comfortable with but we have to do that because the long-term goals are, are so important and that we can't ignore them anymore Um, And I think politically, it's always been difficult to take those steps and to become that disruptive influence. So it's been shied away from. Now, I think I'm hoping the House backs the moves and and we carry on moving in the right direction. And there's certainly been a show that there is commitment to following this through. And there are obviously costs associated with this, Mm -hmm. but uh, potentially investment opportunities as well. Uh, There's investment opportunities. And I think if you you go to decarbonising our electricity supply, um, that would have saved us from so much cost exposure at the moment. Our our cost of our electricity and our cost of gas is just enormous. Had we invested in renewables and had you know some more of that supply been coming from our own wind-powered turbines, then we'd been in a much better place financially. So I think we're now starting to see some of the cost risks associated with not taking action. There are several climate change-related items on the Tynwald Order paper. Daphne Kane explains why. Well, the Act actually ties in for a minister having to move the significant action plan and other documents coming before Tynwald. Chief Minister is also moving a new, more ambitious interim target for 2030 of 35%. The action plan supports that in all the um, itemised actions and strategies that need to come forward to deliver that. And I shall be moving the 
uh, first interim target that actually Tim Wald approved in March of the 45% reduction in emissions by 2035. Um, that's a piece of administration actually because it wasn't legally enforced because a piece of paper wasn't signed at the right time. But Tim Wald has already approved that, so that is a, a bit of tidying up. And, and in terms of the, the various motions, I mean, there seems to be a certain amount of repetition. So why do we need to have separate motions, for example, for the, the, the plan and the roadmap? It's a separate motion purely because the five-year action plan is as set out under the Act that we must always have one in force. In fact, to put this together has been a, an, an incredibly hard um, operation across many, many departments with a climate change transformation team working really, really hard to get something that can be evidence supported by lots of research, input from many, many departments to be able to say this is, in, this is, I think, the most significant document to come forward in terms of our climate change journey. Um, but that is the five-year plan. The roadmap to net zero is there to put it into context of the significant um, milestones along the journey. The, the first five-year plan is, but obviously 2030 when we see, thanks with the, the partnership through Manx Utilities and Council Ministers supporting Manx Utilities investing in a second undersea interconnector to bring greener, cleaner energy to the Isle of Man that way to enable us to decarbonise completely from the gas-powered power station and also to invest in a minimum of 20 megawatt renewables to be delivered on island. So the what can be achieved, now that is hoped to be achieved with the renewables in the term, in the time of this five-year plan, but the other significant events can be seen in that. I, th I think it's pretty easy to read uh, roadmap to net zero and they, they're all part of the picture so to, to give somebody and it's pretty technical and detailed when you get through the action plan into the appendices and I think there are over 30 pieces of um, research strategies and plans that need to come forward to be progressed to be delivered it's a massive step for the Isle of Man coming from a position 30 years or more behind our neighbouring jurisdictions to set on this journey and it will require everybody to make certain changes in their lives for hopefully an improvement in our environment for everybody. Is it fair to say that there's too much bureaucracy associated with all of this um, because the, um, the interim report or, or the phase one uh, report there does seem to be uh, a lot of things that have happened but in terms of the actual meaningful stuff which is going to help us reduce uh, carbon um, there seems to be a lot of bureaucracy being reported, uh, not so much uh, of the direct action. I would love to cut through the bureaucracy, but in terms of how government works, how we're structured, how we invest significant sums of public money for, you know, we need to be sure that when we're spending millions of pounds that we're spending it in the right areas that is going to have the maximum um, impact, positive impact in terms of reducing our emissions, making better low carbon homes, warmer environment for people, less polluting um, transport systems. There, there are. That's why with the plan, the way it's structured, looks at the different areas where we are aiming for a 15% reduction across every single sector. So whether that is buildings, transport, land and agri agriculture, business and waste. 
but alongside that a 10% increase in sequestration and that is all part of the picture but that we're talking crosses all the departments it's where our island plan comes into the fore and the economic strategy that's being proposed that puts sustainability at the heart of all our policies and what's not to like from an island perspective from from a resident an island resident you would want to see better warmer homes costing less to heat being more energy efficient and switching away from fossil fuel boilers but this is you know that has implications and knock-on effect on the building trade the house construction industry but also how we live our lives what what vehicles we choose to purchase do we drive individually or are there going to be more um higher vehicles for if and when we need it and then we get 15 minute communities with people living and working without having to do massive commutes and causing congestion so how we live and that that has implications in terms of quality of life for the future would you want your children to experience the life as you've known it or would you hope things would be better in the future um, some people think that the Elizabethan age we've just seen has perhaps been the boom time and there's going to be a period of struggle before we we manage to implement some of these policies and make it a better island for everybody and I suppose Professor Curran some also might say that it's been a, a, an age of excess um, and maybe this is a part of the, the, the problem of, of, of where we've ended up uh, I, I would agree. I think we've come to realise that we have been living excessively in certain respects in, in, in the near past. Um, but Daphne has very eloquently described the future we can look forward to, which is a much more sustainable future where people will be happier and healthier and we will have a stronger, more resilient economy with longer lasting businesses and creating far less waste um, as, as a society, as you've rightly pointed out, over the past decades we have generated so much waste and we need very much to move towards more of a circular economy and that is built into, it's part of the climate change plan, it's part of the economic thinking of the island as well that uh, we move towards an economy where um, the, the, the items that we consume, the products that we all need to use in our everyday lives are designed to be uh, much more uh, repairable, much more upgradable. Uh, if they need to be, they can be taken apart and the various components used. And, and actually the bottom of the hierarchy is then recycling those materials. So we used to think recycling was the great solution to all of our problems. Actually, it's designing all of our products in an entirely novel way and constructing them in ways that even recycling is a, is a kind of least preferable option. So it's really quite an exciting time to look forward to a much happier and healthier and prosperous future. And that is all part of what this plan is about. And one of the areas which uh, there has been significant excess, and we only have to look around the the, the streets, uh, particularly of the the developed world, to see uh, significant numbers of people who are overweight or obese. you know, food waste, various estimates uh, range between 30 and 50% of the food that is produced uh, is wasted or consumed to, to excess. Um, 
clearly um, a lot of the, the, the food production systems require um, high level uh, high levels of inputs particularly fertilizers um, presumably then uh, if we produced less wasted less um, there'd still be enough for people to eat uh, and it could be a much more sustainable system yeah you're absolutely uh, correct in pointing out particularly in our in our food uh, production and consumption system there is enormous waste and it's particularly tragic when you see many parts of the world where people starve and as you say in in our kind of western society there are many people uh, eating and consuming the wrong products and becoming unhealthy through through that route so it it exposes many of the inequalities that our our system uh, promulgates and we can't solve everything at one time but there is a great opportunity here on the island and i remember three years ago having discussions with the national farmers union here who who seemed to be very uh, aware and very proactive themselves uh, in wanting to change the, the 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 systems of food production and consumption here on the island and it would be my belief that there is an ideal opportunity here in a community like this to create uh, a much more diverse agricultural production system with much more local marketing and much, much more local consumption of foods tailored to what people on the island want and a more collaborative approach across the agricultural community and with its customers. I mean, th these are the kind of futures we, we need to look forward to and with consistent government support, and I know there's a new agri-environment scheme underway, with consistent government support and public support, then we can very easily, I think, uh, adopt a better way of doing business. And in terms of uh, livestock emissions, there, there, there does seem to be some level, at, at the very least, there's, there's debate as to, as to how significant livestock emissions can be. Uh, many people argue that with very long established uh, livestock production systems like we have in the island, uh, there is no actual addition in relation to climate change because the animals have been being kept, reared, uh, used on the island for, for many centuries in a similar way and in fact if anything it's possible that, uh, that uh, livestock levels are, are slightly lower at the moment than they've been uh, for much of uh, the past several hundred years. Yeah, I mean, there are various degrees of intensity of livestock rearing, and, and uh, that is well accepted. And uh, as, as Daphne was alluding to earlier, the, the important point is to gather the evidence, uh, to do the assessment, and to chart the optimum route forward. I mean, diets are changing anyway. Um, people are consuming less meat, driven principally by health concerns. Um, and I'm sure the agricultural uh, community needs to and would want to adapt to that anyway. Uh, and to produce more uh, for a, a vegetarian diet on island uh, and reap the benefits of the profits that will accrue from that as well is entirely sensible as a business proposition. But all of that needs to be based on good evidence, which is why part of the climate change plan is about gathering that initial evidence in order to, exactly as Daphne said, inform the optimum decisions to, to reach the targets that are set out in the plan, which are demanding targets and they are very short-term targets, so that evidence needs to be gathered pretty quickly. 
So then Daphne, uh, Professor Curran there, has, has mentioned that we need to gather evidence. Presumably the, uh, the aborted Green Living grant is, is a great evidence-gathering uh, exercise that you've been able to de- determine that uh, perhaps it needs to be in a different form. It hasn't been aborted, is the first thing. We've suspended new applications for the home energy audits while we tweak the scheme to make it better fit for purpose, and that is with the Department for Enterprise. I know that they have been working very hard. Um, the, the issue isn't so much with the scheme, because the scheme is there to deliver um, solutions to property owners to reduce their emissions. So we want that to happen. We do want people to invest in um, better quality, significant amounts of insulation and double glazing, more sealed doors. So to be able to reduce their the energy they consume to heat their homes. Who wouldn't want that, especially given the cost of living crisis and the, the cost of the energy at the moment. But yes, the scheme needed work. I think when you look back to the end of the last administration, it, it was a great scheme to say, yes, we're going to have this on the table for residents of the Isle of Man. Um, it is one tiny um, target amongst dozens contained within the plan. It does need fixing, it needs to be fit for purpose, and it needs to deliver what everybody wants it to deliver, and that is up to £6,000 support for people to put um, investment into property to reduce energy bills and reduce their emissions. Um, I'm very hopeful that something will be coming forward in the coming month, hopefully next month, from the Department for Enterprise to make the necessary tweaks and make it fit for purpose for the more than 2,000 people who've already entered that system with a view to making property improvements. Um, But in in terms of the the scheme of what we're doing, all of the um, sections of the plan, we are of course developing in contact with the industry, with the construction industry and with the agriculture industry and with the landowners and farmers on the island because they know their own business best and they, in many cases, know some of the solutions and where it needs to move to. So the various departments responsible for the areas will be in collaboration with us coming up with the plan to take us forward for the the, the other five five-year plans that will follow the current one that we hope Tim will support this week. And in terms of that, I mean, the, 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 looking at the roadmap, one thing that stands out primarily because uh, there's a big gap just, just in, as you run up to it is that by 2024, there will be no fossil fuel boilers in new homes. Do you think people are, are prepared for this, uh, you know, in, in terms of um, just understanding why this is necessary and also how they can go from something that they're very, very familiar with and in many cases may have spent, uh, you know, 60, 70, 80 years used to a particular uh, way of heating their homes and then suddenly, uh, as of 2024, if they buy a new home, uh, they've got to get used to something completely different. And what a wonderful new world you're describing. I think I'd be doing a little happy dance on the roof if it was me being able to not have an oil-fired boiler um, anymore, not having to pay gas prices. Um, Yes, the homes fit for the future need to be decarbonised but efficient, energy efficient. So there are already, Manx Utilities has been rolling out a large number um, to their customers, switching over to air source heat pumps. And I'm told by colleagues who've 
um, installed one of those in their own property, actually the cost is about £100 a month, paying off over a 10-year interest-free period. And what they're paying for the air source heat pump is below the amount they were paying for their gas bill previously, and that was two years ago. So that's in a that's in a modern home. What we're talking about is enabling the construction industry to gear up to ensure that when we have the target date for no fossil fuel boilers in new homes, that those new homes are constructed in such a way they don't need a fossil fuel boiler to be able to stay warm and be energy efficient for the residents. So that, that's all for the future. The other thing actually we're having more of a clamour for from the industry at the minute is saying, oh actually can we bring forward the date by which we have energy performance certificates on all homes? Because that has now a bearing in terms of marketing or selling your property or renting a property and also for the future. New homes should all, all be to a very high standard, but all homes in the future need to adapt to climate change and take all those measures which are different because of our coastal um, location and also because of the the traditional form of building on the Isle of Man. But be very sure that that, that has to be an early target because the emissions from homes actually is our, is our highest sector and that they just need to come down. And and in terms of, of the whole uh, the, the housing uh, uh, sector, house building or any sort of construction really, um, part of the problem um, that we face is the huge amount of carbon that goes into producing the materials that uh, we require uh, to, to build with, particularly uh, cement uh, seems to ha- require a vast some amount of energy to, to, to make. What is a sustainable, you know, carbon, a low carbon home uh, not not looking now at the heating side or the powering side, but the actual construction side. What does that look like in the future? Gosh, what an interesting question and quite a challenging one to answer. Um, but just picking up on some points that Daphne made there, I don't think we should ever underestimate uh, the, the, the willingness of people to adopt new technologies. Uh, and that bears you know a reference to your question as well um, we all seem to want the latest mobile phone 5g or whatever it is now we all talk quite happily about broadband and bluetooth and so on these are uh, very complex technical issues but we're very happy to adopt those technologies and to move on to, and to be seen to be modern and progressive well the same I believe is true of things like domestic heating. So we should not overemphasize the fact that this is very difficult and people will resist it. I don't think they will. Um, but when it comes to actually constructing uh, houses, yes, it's, it's something I looked at many years ago in Scotland and I tried to get the entire uh, cycle of blame, as it was often called, uh, together as to why we end up with a built environment that is basically pretty unsustainable. So that is the uh, the developer, uh, the client, if you like, who wants to develop a, a housing estate or a new building, uh, the architect, um, the, 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 the construction company, but also taking it beyond that to the people who fit out buildings and the people who maintain and run buildings, and then ultimately those who take buildings down and demolish them. Uh, all of them blame each other for having an unsustainable built environment. It's crucially important 
that that community that creates our built environment gets together and begins to think, as I said earlier, about a circular economy. So it's about designing buildings from the outset that are entirely sustainable. And that means buildings that you can take apart or you can modify, or why not even move? You know, there are some countries in the world where whole buildings are jacked up and moved. And uh, if you design buildings in the right way, they're much easier to maintain, certainly much cheaper and easier to heat uh, or cool. when we're looking at climate change in the future, but also fitting out the building internally. You know, I, I often make the point that, for me, the most fantastic and sustainable design is the carpet tile. And I'm not here to advertise any particular company, but there is a global company, and it is hugely profit-making, that now manufactures carbon-negative carpet tiles, entirely made of recycled material. The carpet tile itself, and this is just a a little example, is such a sustainable design because if you lay down a new carpet and then the next day you spill a glass of red wine in the middle of it, if that's a fitted carpet, you have to take the whole thing out and the majority of carpets still go to landfill. If it's a carpet tile, you remove one carpet tile, you can even put it in the washing machine. What a brilliant design. And when they're now being manufactured as carbon negative, um, using entirely recycled materials, and I won't name this company because I'm not here to do that, but they are now talking of what they call forest factories. Those factories that manufacture these carpet tiles will actually put more back into nature than they take out in the way of raw materials and resources. This is all perfectly possible, and that is a global company that is very profit-making. So it's about fitting out the building, it's about running the building, it's about what you do with the building. Do you either move it or disassemble it? Or if you have to uh, knock it down in 50 years' time, then every component is reusable and recyclable. Now, that is a challenge, and we're nowhere near satisfying it at the moment, but we're moving there. You mentioned cement. There is now very much reduced uh, carbon emitting cement being produced uh, and we can also now, and it's beginning to happen in Sweden, produce steel that is zero carbon as well. So the change is coming. And as you approach the end of your time uh, working with the Isle of Man government, um, what would you what would you say the highlights of the journey have been and uh, I'm guessing you're going to tell me you're reasonably optimistic for the future. I'm hugely optimistic for the future, of course I am. Um, Speaking very personally, I've loved being here on the island. It's just uh, sad that COVID intervened, so the the great majority of what advice and input I've been able to give has been done remotely. But when I was here at the beginning in preparation for and, and to create the original impact report, I worked with the most fantastic team here on the island, brought together from across all the government departments. And genuinely, that's been one of the highlights of my life, working with that fantastically committed team and producing the impact report in literally it was in three or four months that was a really intense period of work but I loved every minute of it and I look back on that with a great deal deal of fondness but now as as we said it's it's into delivery it's absolutely the right time for me to step back Uh, that's not my bundle of skills to be honest (laughs) I have views on how to deliver um, but uh, I hope I've contributed to the development phase 
and it's now for others with the with 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 a, a more appropriate range of skills to get in there and deliver and i am absolutely firmly optimistic it will be done so daphne kane final word then um Professor Curran has helped you deliver the plan. All you have to do now is deliver it. <laughs> if only it was that simple. We have, first of all, we need to obtain Timwald's support and backing for us to take forward the plan because, make no mistake, this is a significant ambition for the Isle of Man to go on this journey and to achieve what we hope to within the first five years and then beyond to 2050. But I think the Isle of Man owes a debt of gratitude to Professor Curran from that first impact report and for being able to sit on our shoulder and see all the business coming before the Climate Board and giving his input and words of wisdom and knowledge from a scientific background. I, I think that the Isle of Man is in an infinitely better place and more positive place in knowing how we can move forward but the plan requires not only the political support, which we hope will be forthcoming, but as Professor Curran mentioned, this is a plan for the island. It's not my plan. It's not even the Climate Board's plan. It's a plan for the island to sit alongside our economic strategy, our island plan, to deliver a better, more sustainable future for the island, for our biosphere, and to enable generations to come to think that, yes, I think I think there is a line in the plan about handing on an island that is better for the future generations in the hope that they will live better, healthier, um, less polluted lives, and that they will go on um, to do the same for the, the future generations. That was Daphne Kane, MHK, Chair of the Climate Change Transformation Board, and Professor Curran, Lead Advisor to Government in Addressing Climate Change. There is so much more we could have talked about, particularly in relation to the proposed new plan. But does the plan have sufficient ambition and clarity to deliver the widely acknowledged need for urgent action? Is the whole activity surrounding climate change just another fad that we'll eventually tire of and move on to the bigger issues of the day? Or is it really a roadmap to a better future? I suspect the debate will rumble on, but it appears that in Tinwald at least, there is a consensus that big steps need to be taken. I hope you enjoyed the programme, which will be available as a podcast from Manx Radio's website. Please get in touch with Phil Gorn at manxradio.com and let me know your thoughts and views on the programme. And let me know what you would like to talk about in future programmes. But for now, I'm Phil Gorn. Goromayo son, Geishak Rum. Thanks for listening.